Welcome to the Jess Larson Show on Innovation and Leadership. On this episode, I'm really excited to have Paolo Tiramami. Paolo, you've got the most unique uh, LinkedIn title of anybody we've had on the show so far. It says, Industrial Engineer and Billionaire. And I think that's a great combo. <laughs> Welcome to the show. And uh, for the tiny number of people on earth who haven't heard of Boxable yet, will you tell us what you do? Uh, yeah, so we, we are, we're a manufactured uh, housing company. Uh, we started the business to fix a problem, fix a, a really a national uh, primarily, and but also global problem with the housing crisis. And building construction is not in a factory. Lots of good reasons for that. Uh, we've, we've cracked that, which means that we are now uh, post-industrial building construction. And that is a thin end of the wedge that allows us to solve the housing crisis. And we'll see how we do over the next few years. Just a small task. Well, once you finish that one, we've got some other tasks for you. We'll, we'll, we'll let you know what those are later. So um, can, I, can I read off some stats and some accomplishments and you correct me with updated numbers? Is that okay? Absolutely great. First three customers, if I understand, were like, it's Elon Musk, Department of Defense, and D.R. Horton Homes, who's the biggest home builder in the country, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Elon Musk was customer number one. He did buy a prototype. So uh, that was a little anxiety ridden. Uh, he, they were quite persistent. So we did sell them the first one. And we did get an order for Department of Defense, uh, 156 units. And D.R. Horton is a customer. They, uh, they have not ordered yet, but they are investors. They've, they're equity investors in the company. And as I'm sure you know, they're the largest, the largest home builder in America, probably in the world. Uh, they just crossed over 100,000 homes and uh, really so flattering to have such a storied company believe in us, really huge. So one, two, three, not terrible. Sometimes you do a little luck in there as well, you know, so... And uh, I heard about another 167 unit sale that just came through recently. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, there's a mine, uh, miners, uh, the big holes, not children, uh, in in uh, in uh, Arizona, in Baghdad, Arizona, of all places. And I think it's up to about a couple a couple of hundred units. And we 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 have uh, on deck. I think there'll be if that goes well. I think it's it's going well. Will be several. So several, several thousand there. And when we're focusing on uh, developer deals, because we, you know, we're not quite 2.0 consumer grade ready yet. So uh, working with developers uh, is, is, is a way to refine the product to get it consumer ready so we can blast it out after we get our modular certs to our wait list. And do it, last number I heard, the wait list was like 160,000. Mike, close on that? Yeah. It's something, something around there, 160, 170, uh, just, it, it does keep growing. Uh, I, I see it, it, most, a lot of those are with deposits. Uh, so it's a common thing now. You see the Cybertruck and this, that, the other. I really consider that expression of interest. You know, how many of those come through? Uh, those are also unique inquiries. So there are folks there that are asking anything from, from, from one to 50 sort of thing. So uh, it's enough to let us know to, to demand is through, through the roof. Uh, but I, yeah, I would say it's, they're, not, they're not hard orders. It's an expression of interest, but it's a massive, massive expression of interest when you think we're just coming out of the ground and a lot of people don't know about us yet, so. You know, and I realize um, for people who may not have, see, have seen your units, can you describe this like, you know, fits eight and a half feet wide, you can drive it down the highway and it sets up like, in like an hour. Can you explain this stackable system? Yeah, absolutely. So from the top down, 
uh, boxer ball mates are these building shells. They're essentially rooms that can be subdivided. Uh, the plan will be to have three sizes of rooms. And the best way to think about them is the three sizes of Lego, you know, the little square one and the rectangular one, and then the one in between that nobody uses. So, you know, those three sizes, which you can connect stack, cantilever, uh, it's got hidden chaseways for, for wiring PEX lines, things like that inside, very modular based on a grid so that you can stack, 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 build pretty much anything down, down, down the line. And the, the largest module is uh, about 20 by 40 foot without a chute, very tall nine and a half foot ceiling, cut windows and doors wherever you want without headers. You know, what can't you build with that? You can build most things most of the time with that. And that point of entry has been that little square Lego, the 20 by 20 foot um, building shell. And we configured it as an ADU, which in the California market <clears throat> for your viewers is an accessory dwelling unit, granny flat, um, uh, kids that want to leave the home, that sort of thing. And so we configured it for that as a studio home and uh, got this, this huge reaction, much outside of the borders of just the original ADU market. And the Casita itself is a studio home, 20 by 20, nine and a half foot ceiling, but it packs down to this sort of magical eight foot number, uh, which means it can go down the highway without flag cars and additional permits and things like that. And then it, it uh, unpacks in, in about an hour, in about an hour. So it so, sort of blows people's minds that you can unpack a house. It, it triples in volume. Uh, when it unpacks and we, we were just solving an engineering and transport issue, but I really caught the public's imagination and it does come complete with everything, washer, dryer, fridge, everything. And once it unpacks, there is no additional work to do. Everything ports to one corner in terms of, uh, waste, gray waste, uh, heating, electrical, things like that, plug it in and you're living right to modular code. That's incredible. Uh, what's a, what's a single Casita unit? retailing for, do you think at this point? Yeah. So uh, $60,000, uh, we were at uh, $50,000, but that was three, four years ago, uh, prices go up. There's a lot of inflation. So it's still incredible value. Um, companies primary goal, probably heresy to say this at this point is, is actually not to make a profit. It's to scale, fix a problem. Profits will come with mass volume. So you can't have mass production. My background is mass production without, uh, you can't have the prices that come along with mass production without the mass production. So we're not at mass production yet. We're making, um, I think, uh, 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 making two or four, two, two houses a day. Um, which sounds like a lot, but it's not. So, uh, congratulations on opening the second factory. Was that, uh, just a few weeks ago now? Yeah, exactly. So well, what, what we have behind me is 170,000 square feet. Uh, so really we came from a 10,000 square foot R and D space to see if the, the concept was viable. And I, we really consider, uh, what we have behind is still essentially a large R and D space. It's just the project is that big project is that big in terms of dollars. And it's that big in terms of physical products. So we've just picked up another 130,000 square feet next door, Nevada, Las Vegas, fantastic place to do business, to find these uh, uh, relatively affordable brand spanking new tilt up uh, giant buildings for us to uh, hermit crab into. So we're up to 300,000 square feet and still, you know, very, very, very small. And uh, I think we'll have some more news on that 
maybe in a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll see in terms of further, further uh, size. Wow, that's exciting. So I am fascinated with uh, the choices you guys made for financing. You know, in Canada, we had a much more threat, like investor, entrepreneur-friendly uh, securities laws long before the U.S. had the Jobs Act. Um, can you can you talk about using the Jobs Act and and crowdfunding and and uh, you know how many investors, how much money, these kind of things? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my partner and I started this. I you know I put a few million dollars in uh, just to see if it was viable, and it appeared to be viable. And so we said, okay, let's go out, let's go out and get some money. So we spoke to some funds and angels and things like that, and we meet with them, and there'd be a difference in the the, the opinion of the valuation and. Uh, Conversely, I agreed with the angels and not with ourselves as the entrepreneurs. You know, I said, well, yeah, how can we value it where we want to value it? Uh, well, we haven't done anything yet. We've made a few prototypes. So I really totally understood uh, the, the, the fund guy's uh, position and actually agreed with them. And then my business partner came to me and said, you know, I, 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 think, we can, I think we can crowdfund this. And uh, I said, what? You know, it's, what is that? Like, isn't that for like fizzy pop? bottles, stuff like that. And he said, well, yes, but I actually think we can. So, so we did. And he managed it quite brilliantly in my estimation. Fast forward, um, if we're not the, if we're not the biggest, most popular crowd fund in history, you know, it's got to be very close. Maybe certainly in the physical space, I would think for sure, maybe in the digital space with crypto tokens and things like that, maybe not, but, um, we've raised around 160 million dollars crowdfunding. I think we have 44, 45,000 investors. And I remember the, the fund guys at the beginning saying, oh, you don't want that many people on your cap table. And I'm thinking to myself, no, you don't want that many people on my cap table. It's got nothing to do with sure. us. Uh, and uh, yeah, we're sort of power, power to the people. This is sort of people's movement almost with that many uh, folks uh, that, that have invested. And we did... Uh, uh, not to get too into the weeds, but, you know, we did a reggae plus, uh, I think it was 70, $75 million a year in the U.S. And uh, we can do that annually um, with Reg D, I think is the unaccredited one. And we're looking actually at uh, Canada and Europe now. The company needs uh, uh, billions and billions of dollars to scale effectively. It is a mass play. If we wind up being even a large regional player, I think we would consider that a failure for the project, but we haven't shepherded it through to mass production uh, correctly. Uh, I actually believe we could, we, I think we can crowdfund a billion dollars. And if I can be modest for the company, I think that's probably going to be a Harvard lecture series at some point in the, those folks did what now? Uh, lecture, you know? I love it. You know, it's, it's surprising to me. Um, so, you know, again, I, I'd started off Citigroup m and I, I hang out with some of my friends who had similar backgrounds, right? And there is this very, like, they look down their nose on the crowdfunding, like, that's not, that's not how it's really done, right? And, and they want these cap tables with only two or three funds on it or 10 or something. And I'm like, you guys, all of your goal is to become a publicly traded company at some point. Like, if, if this was like a, a principle that was true at all times, you wouldn't all be trying to exit to being public. And uh, look at you guys having like 45,000 real brand ambassadors talking positively, spreading the word. I mean, it's an incredible advantage if it's done correctly. Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of, a couple of great 
po- point, point, points in there with, with the folks not wanting a lot of people on the cap table. It's, you know, they have to get with the program. Uh, and it's sort of horses for courses. It depends on the scale, depends where you're at in the sort of the arc of the company. And certainly early days, it's extremely uh, viable and a great way to do things if you've got a compelling product which with general interest uh, to sell. And I, you know, I'd liken it with, you know, media today, you know, you've got the TV news media and you've got podcasts, which is yourself. Where's the future? It's not in TV. It's not in the mass media. This is sort of the, just democratized podcast environment where people can say what they want and folks can listen to what they want when they want, and they don't have to hear repetitive blather, you know? So it's, I think it's quite analogous. Uh, to to sort of the, sort of the big the bigger VC funds and and the crowdfunding and you make really a terrific point about the brand ambassadors when we when we set up uh, our factory here we set up a tour really just to thank we didn't think too hard about it you know, I'm a design industrial designer I like doing things that are nice looking and so we set up a Disney tour and we patented it I'm a big fan of Disney um, uh, what they do with their parks and things like that and. We, we patented it after Disney, you know, folks come, they sign the waiver, they put all the PPP, the orange PPE with the boxable hat on, and they're getting into like the sort of space capsule electric car. They got a roof over the head. They don't need the PPE, but they love to put it on. We love to dress them up. They love it. It's all part of the experience. And the doors open like a Jurassic Park ride. And we have our fabs. We have three fabs. That's the job title up front. They only wear white and they are. Uh, brand ambassador, brand ambassadors for our public brand and brand brand ambassadors. Don't say that too quickly. And uh, we have uh, several dozen people coming every day from all over the country. It's really quite humbling. And we didn't really think that through. We just wanted to do a nice ride. And to your point, they are brand ambassadors, and they're out there talking about it. You know, we have an investors group. Uh, Facebook group that started very small. Uh, there's 18,000 people. We've got probably one in three of our investors is on that is on that Facebook group, and they're all talking. And there were people are posting videos of of their tours, and it just uh, it just builds on itself. And it's been just an amazing plus that we hadn't had not anticipated. And given that we're so crowdfund centric, it just goes hand in glove and I, I could I could tell you that it was all planned. <laughs> well um I imagine uh, quite a number of them that are pretty happy with the last last value es- valuation estimate I heard on you guys was like three point three billion. Is that close? Uh, yeah, something like that. And I think that it's important for folks to understand the entire vision, how much we actually have to raise, how big the marketplace is, what a unique position that we hold in the marketplace because we've created it. We're the only people that have created a post-industrial marketplace for building construction as consumer goods to be as perfect as an iPhone, to get it as quickly as you can get or order a shirt on, on, uh, Amazon. And, uh, uh, so, you know, so, so, so that's, that's, you know, that's, that's where we are with that in terms of evaluation, the scale of this thing is so, so huge. And it's our obligation to get there as quickly as we can. Yeah. You know, um, I've been, I've been lucky enough to have maybe 30 or so folks on who've kind of grown zero over a billion themselves. And I like to ask some similar questions and see how the, you know, what they have in common and kind of what their unique perspectives are. Um, 
if I could ask some of those, I think one of my first ones is, how would you define product market fit? What does that mean to you? Uh, so product market fit, it, 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 it depends really what you mean by that. But the, the customer is king, right? So you can't have a factory that makes, you know, a fantastic A-frame house and then everybody's got to live in an A-frame house or a container and everybody's got to live in a container. The customer is king. And the way to divine that or divide that is that the customer needs the cu all the customization they need and the factory, like the one behind me, needs to make repeatability. But at the end of the day, at the end of, end of the day it's absolutely has to be about the customer. Uh, and what does that mean? So there are sort of three legs to that stool. Um, at the factory, we need to make things, we need to make the product as, as quickly as possible, as low cost as possible, and at, at the highest speed possible, just to fill the pipeline for the customer. And then the customer needs to be able to dial that in. You know, it's a big country, it's a big country, it's a big world. And even within our own borders, you know, the Southwest to the Northeast, you've got very different styles of homes. At one end, you've got Adobe's and at the other, at the other ones, you've got, uh, you know, colonials that George Washington presumably lived in. And, uh, so, um, boxable is architecturally neutral. You know, they look very plain and that's on purpose. Uh, we've done all the heavy lifting in terms of, you know, uh, thermal, uh, thermal bridging, hurricane load, shear strength, all that good stuff. And what's left is to dial it in gingerbread style. There's nothing structural when you turn your, your boxable, either leave it alone or turn it into an Adobe or a log cabin or whatever you, whatever you want to do. So, uh, we have a very different set of principles, I think, to everybody else, but it, it's all about, it's all in service of the customers. It's all in service of the customer and everything is secondary to that. You know, we have a lot of. Uh, entrepreneurs who come on the show and listen to the show who uh, would like to achieve the kind of success you have, what other zero to billion lessons would you, would you uh, have for them to think about? Uh, I've got one. Sure. It's just, it's just three words. It's just never give up. Yeah. Never give up, you know, so never give up, right? And you heard that story it takes, uh, you know, 20 years or 40 years to become an overnight success when you come out the ground and other people notice, but really you know, what happened to, of the decades prior, because you never gave up and most people give up. That's the reality of it. It just becomes too hard or it's too long or it's too repetitive. So you never, you, you never give up. And the other part of it is unless you're extraordinary, extraordinarily fortunate, you'd be better be prepared for long hours, right? So you can love your family, you can love your kids, you can go on vacation. But uh, when you're doing those things, you better be thinking about work. Your mind would better, better go to work. Or unless you're an ultra genius, it's absolutely, it's not, it's not going to happen for you. It's not going to happen for you. You have to absolutely count the hours. And I think you have to have something of an obsessive personality and a, and a drive, you know, and, and some level of aggression, I would say as well. Um, success is unreasonable. Forget who said that. Was it Mark Twain? Somebody will correct me. I'm sure it wasn't. Uh, so it's unreasonable to succeed. So perhaps you need to be a little bit unreasonable. Perhaps you need to question everything. You know, I, I mean, uh, I'll say that I, 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 I think traffic lights are a sign of oppression and I'm joking, but I'm only joking a little bit. One of the other billionaires that we had on here, Richard Koch, he wrote the 80-20 principle. His latest book is called Unreasonable Success. So and may I add something to that 80-20? Uh, 
So 80-20, it actually in reality turns out to be something like 95-5, right? So for your viewers that may, may have not uh, come across that, it's, you know, 5% inspiration and 95% uh, perspiration. But the other, the other part of that with entrepreneurship and growth is you have to be able to take measured risks. You know, my friends and may look at me and say, well, you know, Paolo's a risk taker, but I'm not. I don't believe I'm a risk taker. You know, I, I get my facts and I'll don a helmet and then I'll, you know, I'll take my risk. But in business, if you want to grow, especially as it relates to entrepreneurship, uh, you have to make a hundred percent decision. You have to make a decision. It's digital. Did I, or did I not make that decision? Normally it's digital. You do or you don't. And you often have to make that with five or 10 or 15% of the information that you really need. So what happens in that instance is you can be cautious and wait, and maybe that train leaves the station, maybe that opportunity, large or small, passes you by, and it could be a component opportunity of a larger opportunity, could be the big opportunity itself. Or you can say, I, I don't have all the information. It's either impossible to get all the information because nobody's done it before, or I don't have the money, resources, or time to get all the information to make that decision. So I'm going to use my judgment and I'm going to go for it. And I think successful entrepreneurs have an instinct that they either have naturally or they have naturally and it builds over time to make decisions. So, you know, do I want to ponder uh, for a month to make a decision uh, and be digitally correct or not correct on that? Or do I want to make three decisions or four decisions that period of time and maybe I'll get two right. I'm lucky I'll get three right out of four. I'm ahead. I'm ahead. And if the bad decision doesn't kill me, and if the cost of remediation, if any of that bad decision isn't too bad, go for it. Go for it. So it's really a mindset. You know, are yeah. you safe? Are you safe? Or are you just going to swim over to the docks, to the deep side of the pool? <laughs> you know, another question I have for you is, you guys have fun. Like, I, I like to see the, uh, you know, the Tesla pulling a boxable. <laughs> like, you guys have fun. You, you joke. You're, you're not, like, so precious. You know, you're, you're like, I watched a lot of your videos, and, and more times than not, somebody's laughing in them, right? And, um, well, I, I was just thinking about, like, you know, another billionaire, Richard Branson. He thinks that his job is to get free ink. To get to get people to talk, to get you know, to get in the newspaper without paying for the ad, to you know, to have fun and and to be willing to be the public personality. And there are a lot of CEOs who or founders who feel like, well, logic says if we have the best thing, it should sell. So that should be enough. I shouldn't have to be a public personality. And there's obviously many many companies that have been built with a very private founder who isn't. Um, when you think about the advantages of being public, of of making funny videos instead of only serious ones, um, these kind of things. What do you feel like the advantages are? Yeah, so yeah, I've really touched on a couple of things. So before, before I just touch on those, it comes to uh, Richard Branson. I, I, I grew up watching him. Uh, so he's quite a bit older than me. And, uh, and uh, just he was, uh, you could tell I grew up in, in England, in London. And, uh, you know, he was there. He was the rock star. And uh, British Airways would call him the grinning sweater because they were, to your point, they were all stuffy and form with the suit and tie. And he'd just come in with a big, horrific, yeah, 80s uh, woolly, woolly sweater. So there's that. And then as in terms of how it relates to Boxable, it may be both a generational and a technological 
issue. And what I mean by that is social media drives the fun for exposure and investment or profit or awareness. So sort of yesterday's freeing is now eyeballs on a digital screen. And if, if, I, if I think about D.R. Horton, yeah, I think they're 60 years old, very storied company. You know, if the founders ran around and dropped cars out, out of windows and do all the crazy things we do, I don't think they would have made it. Uh, they wouldn't have got any press for it and there wouldn't have been any value doing that. Um, today, if, if you can have fun doing that and it makes business sense, that's great. And both my uh, business partner, who's my son, uh, and I are probably wired the same. We're uh, really rail against the stuffiness. We can put on a suit, a suit uh, with the best of them and talk intelligently. But so a lot of the time that's not called for. And one of the things I think just through osmosis that we're hearing from our investors and fans all the time is they love the fact that we speak plainly and that we are frank and that we are transparent. And of course, there is confidential things that go on at Box of All with, with customers and processes and patents and uh, business decisions and the occasional screw up. But mostly, it's all out front. Mostly, we're talking about any screw ups that we make. We talk about the challenges that we have. And we're just doing that because it's easier. I don't want to have to remember the last thing I told somebody. If I can just tell them what actually happened, it's just much easier. And uh, folks respond. And I, I think if, if I were to dissect it, and I'm no psychologist, I would say that, you know, looking at us, you would say, well, if they're admitting this stuff, you know, uh, they're pretty much admitting it. And, and it, they're pretty frank and truthful and transparent. And we are. And I think that, I think that pays dividends in, in investor and cus customer com confidence. Whereas if we're there with some talking points, uh, on a teleprompter, it, it, it wouldn't, we wouldn't get the reaction from the public that we do. You think about the halo effect that Apple got from Steve Jobs or Tesla gets from Elon Musk or Richard Branson and Virgin. If you were talking to a CEO who is they're, they're maybe looking for that little bit of courage to like become a much more public face of the brand and see if they can bring that halo effect to their company. What, what would you say to encourage them? Yeah, I, I think it depends what type of company you're building. But if you are okay being in the public eye, it's absolutely beneficial. But the price, your privacy does get eroded. And so that's something to consider. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine being at the level of some of those folks that you mentioned as well. Uh, but uh, yeah, just put yourself out there, speak uh, plainly. And I think that folks, folks will respond if you've got something that they're interested in listening to. It's, it is absolutely a beneficial, and I'll say it's also beneficial in meetings. Uh, you know, when, when pe people come in or we meet people and they've seen you already, uh, we're all Neanderthals. And my theory is when you meet another Neanderthal, you're not sure about them, right? So you're going to have some questions and you're going to be rather guarded. The second time you meet the same Neanderthal, you're like, oh, he didn't hit me with a club the last time. And uh, you can actually move on to maybe a more substantive discussion 
And I think when folks have already seen you, you've, you've gone default uh, psychologically to that second Neanderthal meeting where they're ready to have a discussion and see, see, see where, where, you know, where, where that discussion might go, as opposed to having sort of an intro, an intro meeting where nothing really happens. I will say it's, it's funny having a podcast and then meeting people and they say, oh, I feel like I already know you. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's nice, you know, it's flashing. We all, we all have egos. Uh, so it, it is nice. It's certainly nice when people, when people stop, stop us on the street and, and elevation or whatever it is. So, and you know, they're not, they're not, the other thing is, you know, if somebody hates you, they're not really going to stop you. They, if they stop you, they're going to say something nice. So, so it's, it's quite pleasant. But it's, it is a hundred percent good for business, hundred percent good for business from, from, uh, from a doing business, uh, point of view, it's absolutely beneficial for sure. Maybe let's talk about those meetings. So let's say, you know, you're willing to be a, a bigger face of the company and, and it generates some inbound interest for whether it's a, you know, a giant multimillion dollar investor, giant multimillion dollar, um, client or, or some other high, high level partnership opportunity for the business. What kind of principles do you bring to a meeting like that to help, you know, good intentions actually get over a finish line? Yeah. So the, 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 the people we've spoken to in a very short period of time is quite shocking. Uh, I'm probably not going to name them because the SEC gets all upset. We have to disclose everything every course. So we, we don't, we won't, we don't want to slow, slow us down, but it's the same principles that you see for life. It's just, uh, you know, go in, go in with an open mind and be as frank as you can. And the higher, the higher you go up the food chain, the less you're able to fool people. The higher you go up the food chain, the smarter that guy is, the less you're going to be able to fool them. Should you feel so inclined, uh, to do, to do so, you know, so, uh, uh, so if you just go in and be yourself and just, just, just speak frankly and from your heart and that's, that's, that's all it takes, you know, if you're not, so if there, if there's no hidden agenda, that's a good place to be. <laughs> and uh, you can scope out hidden agendas if it's from on the other side fairly quickly. I'm interested when you think about those large enterprise account sales, um, so often, especially at the highest levels, so much depends on relationship. When you think about meeting this high level person that could be millions of dollars for Boxable or anything else, and you think about the principles of of creating a genuine relationship with them, because it's going to be a while before a check gets signed or contract gets signed. What's your mindset or what tips do you have for other CEOs who want to get better at, at that building the relationship in between meeting them and getting the contract signed? Oh, it's just one. It's just one. Don't be intimidated. Don't be intimidated. Uh, meetings and negotiations, meetings and negotiations, all, all meetings are some form of negotiation. So. Uh, if, if you're intimidated, you've just given value to the other party, but don't be intimidated. They're just a person. They're just a person. That's, that's numero uno. And then, uh, if you're relaxed and you talk to them like you would talk to, uh, a friend or your girlfriend or boyfriend, or the same way you would talk to, uh, a toll booth, uh, taker that takes your money and you're polite, say, Hey, how you doing? That's it. You know, just, just be very, very natural. And, uh, if you can't, if you can't do it naturally, then just do it unnaturally, but just relax. When you think about people, um, trying to help themselves be unintimidated and relax, 
Is it things like just getting honest about what you've got to offer and not not exaggerating it so that you can just be confident of this is who I am, this is what I have to offer? Or what would you say different than that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a difference between marketing yourself and your product and lying. So don't lie. Don't lie. Because uh, it's all going to get sort of sniffed out. Uh, but, there, you know, there is, there is, there is marketing. Uh, you know, so, yeah, it's just, you know, if you want to give yourself a sort of a 5%, a 5% power adder, 5% boost and what your credentials are. But that's about it. That's about it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. There's really no, there's really no secret. Just talk to that person without being intimidated. When somebody comes up to you and they're intimidated, you get it. You understand it straight away. If it's, um, uh, if it's a fan, uh, if it's a fan or a customer, uh, my job is to put them at ease and make them recognize that I'm sorry, just a regular human being and I, I don't want them to feel that way. If it's a business negotiation, good, I'm going to use it. You know, thinking about this zero to billion journey, for somebody who they are in a bigger market, they do have the right kind of company that has the potential. What do you feel like is one of the main things that holds an entrepreneur back? I think that just comes down to, it, it just comes down to the individual person, but typically they're not just, they're just not thinking big enough. They're not thinking big enough, number one. Or number two, they're, they're thinking big enough to the point where we're, they're daydreaming, but they're not slicing it up into steps so they can bring it back and take the first step and make a plan to get there. Uh, if I just speak personally about what's happened at Boxable, my partner and I did not think it would scale so rapidly. And we did not think that it Originally, it would have the potential to be as, as big as we think potential can be today. But we sort of genetically programmed the business for massive scale uh, from, from the outset. You know, so we, it's just like any of the design principle. You just try and think of the biggest thing you can and then just divide it up and just take it uh, one, 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 step, one step at a time. One step at a time. If you're looking to do something really big, uh, or you're going to die of indigestion, and sometimes you get lucky, as I, I mentioned earlier. We have these three building shells. Uh, we were able. To, uh, we we showed at the first year IBS. We showed the twenty by forty, the big building shell, which you could stack connect cantilever, as I mentioned earlier, to make all these different combinations. And those skew counts, um, single case unit counts, explode in a heartbeat. You're in a 10,000 square foot R&D shop. You don't have any resources to explore all of that. And we would have died of indigestion. And after that show, I was actually on a, uh, on a, I remember it was, we were on a, a motocross ride. You know, we've got great, great mountains here. And we were just parked up and with, with Gallio, you know, we were saying, you know, how do we take a small bite out of this thing? What, what could be viable? And he said, you know, this ADU market with these uh, tiny home types. And they said, he said to me, well, you know, with the smallest building show, why don't you just configure that to be an ADU? And uh, it just caught the public's attention, which again is that luck factor where it was just the right size, just the right amount of money. And people could just, um, just put their own use case to it. Uh, and it just, it, it just took off. And then we said, okay, okay, Henry Forge, you know, let's, 
stars as blacks, you know, so let's focus on making that an enormous volume. Let's not talk to people about the whole building system. It's not necessary. It's not appropriate. Money is pouring in. Orders are pouring in. Why do we need to tell folks uh, that we have these grand delusions of grandeur to fix the whole housing crisis when they just want a $50,000 home? So let's just focus on that. And we're still in that phase. We talk, you know, we just showed IBS uh, a two-story, two, two and a half, uh, two, uh, three bed, two and a half bath homes, just to let some of our investors see a little bit more of the systems. But really, we're sort of we're hardcore focused on producing that casita uh, at a price I think is going to shock people. I think the building shells, uh, just focusing on mass production of those building shells, is going to become uh, it's, it's going to get to a truly truly shocking price. But yeah, you've got to. Uh, there's an analogy or a saying for everything, right? So shoot for the stars, hit the moon, but you can't just randomly hit the moon. Just think as big as you can, but then you must, you've got to slice it up so you can take uh, one step at a time. That's such good advice. You know, there's so many founders that would like to achieve the success you have and haven't. What do you think is different about you? What do you think you've done different that other people haven't done to be able to accomplish what you've done? So my background is an industrial designer, mechanical engineer, uh, filing patents, yeah, a, lot, a lot of patents to our name, a lot of patents to my name, a lot of patents to the company's name. So for me, I can only speak personally, it's been about innovation. So we are highly, highly risky because most new ideas are actually bad ideas. So, uh, you know, the commodity product, if it's a paperclip or something, is what's left after everything that doesn't work has been thrown out. Be like, oh, I can make that pay-per-click better, better. And it's like, well, really? You know, a lot of people have tried that. So for us, it's always been innovation. So you do require a skill, in my case, over decades to, to sort of route out, you know, the, the, the good ideas. But it doesn't have to be innovation, does it? It can be a superior logistics a company. It could, it could be marketing. It could be, doesn't have to be innovation. So you have to find your unique forte. So I can't really speak, I don't think, intelligently broadly about that because I've only ever done the innovation thing and it hasn't always succeeded either way. Uh, but, uh, you know, for us, uh, instead of, you know, we, we would typically file patents and license into industry for royalty, very simple business model. And for your viewers, a royalty would be like, just like any other talent, if you are a songwriter uh, or you're an author. And every time somebody listens to a song, buys a book, you get a couple of bucks. Um, so we did that very successfully with, with, with inventions and decided a few years ago that we wanted to be operators in a space. And so we said, well, you know, if, uh, if, if an accountant can count and it doesn't matter what they count, just here, put them in front of something, go ahead and count that, please. Uh, then if you're an innovator, it shouldn't matter what you innovate. So for us, we didn't start with the idea. We started with the problem. We said, okay, that's what's the biggest problem that we can find. And that get, that just sort of preemptively gave us a massive space to go play in. And we were fortunate enough that in our estimation, building construction is the last, is the last pre-industrial product, which simply means not built in a factory. It's the last consumer good that isn't because it's custom. One of the time 
uh, built out in an open field with variable quality, no brand, and all the big problems that come without um, post-industrial manufacturing. So the technologies that we've developed here are innovations in and to, them, to themselves, but also then because we're post-industrial in a factory, we can take advantage of everything that a modern world offers any new company or any goods and service uh, from you know, the, inter the internet to just logistics and software and computers. Anything that is a system or a standardized product, we can now take advantage of. So we actually look cleverer than we are because we can take advantage of, of all of those things. You know, it, it's been fun that you guys do put so many factory tours and things on YouTube. I, uh, our, we own a consulting firm and uh, we do like lean operational excellence consulting. So I got to go do the tours in Japan at Toyota and all over the U.S. for people competing for some of the prizes. And, um, you know, I, it's like because you're like publishing the real conversations, it's like I can hear you guys innovating right on the right on the videos. Oh, yeah, we're thinking about this, but actually the next iteration we're doing this. And uh, it's fun. It feels like we get to be there with you. We do, you know, and I, I think people, I think people's human nature, the government's uh, uh, is, is a sort of a default to secrecy. Some sort of default is, why? Why? We had the folks from Monroe come in. Sandy and his team came in. Because uh, we're trying to get to the finish line. The finish line is, you know, highest quality in Europe lowest cost, faster speed, as I mentioned before, as quickly as we can. And uh, in our conference here, I mean, our main conference room, we have a big red button. You push the big red button and it flashes. That means there are cameras and, and mics. And so we had a wrap-up section that came for a preliminary week. We, we, hit, the, uh, we hit the button and uh, we'll, we'll look at it through it for any confidential information. It's a, basically a long form, several hour wrap up. It's in the weeds, definitely for geeks. They're nothing to hide. You know, if, if their team says, you're doing that really badly, our reaction is great. We've got something to fix and the cost will come down. And if you want to throw some praise, that's nice too. So yeah. So to your point, absolutely. We can put it out there. Um, and we put mistakes out there too. And I think that's also very validating. Uh, I think it's for us, it's just cathartic, honestly. You know, you're just like, oh, look, we screwed that up. Look at that. It snapped in half. That wasn't good. It's all great. So I'm actually, so that there's, you know, we'll, we'll be posting that up. It's several hours long. That's great. You know? Oh, so fun. For the rest of us who want to, who want to build bigger innovation muscles, what's a tip that's, what's a principle that served you well as you've basically had a career of innovation? Oh, yeah. I, I think that I, I can answer that. Most innovations, I don't even know what a true innovation is. Everything is out, but you can reference other things. Um, I don't know how to put that. You can reference whatever your task is. You can find something outside of that discipline to reference the task. And I think so you just have to, you just have to sort of broaden your bandwidth, you know, blinkers, whatever you want to say. You can't just think uh, a chair is not a chair. Just think about furniture, think about concrete, think about uh, jetliners, think about everything and anything. You have to really, uh, you know, just absolutely broaden the horizons. Um, I think that folks uh, with uh, sort of attention deficit disorder, you know, it used to be 
very popular a few years ago. It seems to have died down, by the way. I think we've gone on to other maladies. But, uh, you know, I think that those folks who cannot stay on task have basically a low offense for incoming thoughts and ideas and noise. Uh, so it's a lot uh, less linear and structured and it's more chaos. And that chaos creatively can be very, very good. But I think if I, if I had to describe it, I would say you just have to look outside of the task for the solution oftentimes, um, you know, I know that's terribly abstract. I can't find a, I can't find a better way to describe it. No, I, I love it. it. It lines up with so much of the best advice out there from IDEO or, you know, Richard Koch, the guy we spoke about earlier, he says, you need to look in the distant part of the solar system because you get it's the only way to get out of the group think the people in your industry. Um, listen, this has been so fun. Uh, will you give us the website for everybody who wants to go put their pre-orders in? Yeah, boxable.com. Well, thank you so much for making time for this. This has been great. Yes, I really enjoyed it. And I, and I looked through your website yesterday before, uh, before coming on. And you've had a lot of really great people on. And so uh, you're going to be uh, uh, following me around in my car on my audio uh, for the next <laughs> couple of weeks as I, I grind through a lot of the really, really cool folks you've had on. So, so that's great to me. Oh, thanks so much.